0: Um it's been a little bit of a hiatus here, but uh, 2020, so what are you going to do? Um, I'm really excited about today. I, the reason I do this podcast is because I love to research and I love to find people who are studying a little bit on the fringes that give some perspective, that push the envelope on what is known in the existing um, kind of lexicon of truth. So uh, I save it, these episodes, when I find some someone that I really, really want to talk to and it's doing interesting things but specifically people who are not just digging and searching for truth but they're applying their theories and practically they're testing them out to see if they hold water and that's what we found today um, with Dr. Herman. Dr. Herman is a really interesting guest because he's interested in a lot of different fields. Um, He's interested in geology and plate tectonics. He's interested in the Nazca lines and how that impacts why those development of those things, what they show us about the Nazca people, what it shows about climate change. He's also interested in some hidden gems in New Jersey where he's gone and discovered ancient uh, Lenape communities and Ethiopian communities who had hidden fortresses in near Round Mountain and Cushitown Mountain in New Jersey. So we're going to talk a little bit about all those things today. I don't know how we're going to get it in, in an hour, but we're, we are, and I think you're going to find it Intriguing, and I hope that you enjoy the guest today. So, without further ado, here we go. First of all, I want to thank you for hopping on this. Um, I I don't think I've been this excited to have a conversation in a long time, and maybe that's just a little bit of uh, COVID stuff where I've been cramped up and not been able to chat with people. But I think it's more than that. Um, I think I'll tell you a little bit. Um, I want to before I jump in, I'll tell people how I came to um kind of came across your research and because we've got about 65 million years to cover in about an hour here and that's a that's a 15 pounds of sugar going into a five pound sack right there so we'll try to do our best to do it but i've never tried to get 65 million years into one hour so that should be fun but really i found your research initially because i was uh, looking into some family history in the new jersey area and i came upon a mountain that had a legend there that you had done a little bit of research and so i reached out to kind of because i was curious about the rest of your story like the rest of the research that you were doing and it turns out that you've got a lot more interesting things just just about mountains in new jersey that you're studying um so i thought maybe before we dove into all the different areas Could you tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, It sounds like you're you're recently retired, but kind of before then, where did it all start?
1: Well, thank you for the opportunity to do this. Um, It all started um, in the mid 50s, 1950s in rural Northwest Central Ohio. And what I have come to learn are the recessional, glacial recessional marines um, of the last Wisconsin and glaciation. That leveled the playing field, as it were, in Ohio and allowed us to till our our 600 acre farm. And um, we ended up selling the farm, which was an operating uh, 100 head a day Holstein cattle farm where we did the milking, I rode the horses, we fed the livestock, and we tilled the half mile long fields until um, I felt like shooting myself sometimes (laughs) because that is hard um um, work that um
0: if you don't have
1: the proper um you know the equipment and the the clothing when you're when you're sitting on a hunk of metal going back and forth you know half a mile at a time filling fields in the middle of winter you wonder uh, you know why you're out there doing that sometimes but that's where i come from and um I didn't know, you know, I didn't have a very good uh, and, and robust primary education. I grew up in rural Ohio where we were taught the... Um, so I actually started it in a parochial school, my first and second grade. And even though um, I was raised a, a, a staunch Catholic, um, the nuns in that, in that time introduced me to the likes of Chagall and Dali, And, you know, so they expanded my mind. And it all, you know, has come together over the time to where now I'm 63, and everything that I look back upon has been part of this Jenga tower that uh, I've been building in my life. And, and now, you know, it's culminating in some rather amazing things that uh, I can only attribute to a number of things that uh, represent the polarity of life—the good, and bad—and there's things that you you, know, you do in positive and negative aspects, and you all do those things. So. Thank you for having me, I'm looking yeah. forward to this.
0: So the, the verbose way of saying what you do, I guess, is that you're a PhD, and you're a structural geologist using digital geospatial computing and remote sensing equipment to help conduct tectonics and aquifer research. And that doesn't sound at all sexy when people hear it. It's not It's not exciting necessarily <laughs> to come off the tongue. But what it has allowed you to do is a lot of really interesting into areas that you were curious about that have been sparked from when you were younger. So can you talk a little bit about how you started off kind of mapping wells and bedrock uh, kind of? Sure.
1: And um, then how that led into your other well, my, If you've all watched uh, the dirtiest jobs in the world, um, when we sold the farm and I, I became Richie Cunningham from Happy Days, I was working in a hardware store with my father in, in a college town in, in a better part of Ohio that was more educationally rich. And I met people there and I realized eventually that I needed to go back to college. To facilitate that, I got onto an uh, industrial laboring crew, and for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the guy who hired me at this point in my life, and I regret that. I really did. Because he uh, took me out to Montana in Glacier National Park, where uh, a kid growing up in the flatlands of Ohio for the first time was exposed to mountains. And for the life of me, I couldn't understand how those things could form. The forces that came to play that would raise mountains like it were laying out in front of me at the scale and immensity that were perplexing to me. Being a, a flatlander. <laughs> so um, I found on that trip, which was, you know, uh, 12, 24 hours on ships and 48 hours off hiking up into the mountains, that um, I want to understand what made mountains rise. So my calling came to become a structural geologist to do that. I went back to school at Ohio University, got my bachelor's after getting 60 hours of uh, business administration. And realizing I really didn't need four years to, to learn how to buy low and sell high, <laughs> which is you know what business is about. And um, and so this piqued my interest and I got into geology. And since that time, Matthew, it has been a, a, a ride that I can't even begin to express to you because um, my bachelor's and tutelage under some really amazing mind expanding people, Damian Nance, Tom Wordsley, and my colleagues at the time. Um, led me to the University of Connecticut where I got my master's degree trying to understand the complexity of the way that the the Pennsylvania mountains was squished like a rug across the carpet of the earth. And I couldn't figure it out. We didn't know. We, all the research I'd done couldn't figure out why they were that way until I was working one day in a job that I was trained to do petroleum exploration for and I ended up in the water business because I married into the state of New Jersey. and. The oil industry is fickle. The energy industry is fickle in terms of its highs and lows and the world stage in terms of how petroleum is discovered and traded. At that particular time, it was a downturn. I ended up in the clean water, the dirty water business, trying to regulate contaminated facilities in the most populated state in the Union. Came home from work one day and I asked my wife, uh, I told my wife, Well, I know where I don't want to live. It's Flemington, New Jersey, because I just went to the worst polluted area that I've ever seen in my life. And now I live in Flemington, New Jersey. <laughs> it's not that bad. So people <laughs> that to be from Flemington, New Jersey, uh, you know, you'll appreciate that this is actually uh, what I refer to as the Lunatic Fringe. <laughs> not too close to Megalopolis, but on the little side of things. And um, so now I'm here, i work for the Geological Survey Mapping. Uh, my I was hired then to, um, at that time, uh, we, we realized that uh, with the impending water crisis, born out of the increase in population demand in the region that we had to understand our aquifers better. So the state and a, and a brilliant geologist by the name of Frank Markowitz sought to get through the legislature, a $2 million bond fund funded that ultimately paid for my research. And he um, actually ended up not becoming the state geologist because of politics, something else happened. And, uh, but nevertheless, through 32 years, I endeavored to understand the way that uh, the Appalachian Mountains were created and how water moves in the subsurface. Because if you have a house on one street and there's a gasoline station down that street that's releasing ETEX, uh, benzene, toluene, ethylene, xylene into the groundwater, then it could get into your well. And if it gets into your well, you either have to move or treat it. So if you understand how water moves into the subsurface and surface, you understand a large part of what humanity is based on, which is the need for fresh water.
0: So while you were poking down your head down these wells, you were looking at fractures in the substrata, and you were also looking for something else except for the escaping gas into the water supply. You had oh, you had yes. something else on your mind. <laughs> what was oh,
1: that? I, I, I so much appreciate this line of question <laughs> because um, when a friend of mine, uh, Manuel Charles, a colleague that I met at the survey, and then he went on to work for the federal counterpart, the U.S. Geological Survey, where he still works in Trenton. Um, he plopped a book down on my desk called The Chesapeake Invader, which is about the 35 million year old Chesapeake impact in Chesapeake Bay that is responsible for unraveling mysteries behind my MS thesis that I couldn't figure out because I didn't know an impact happened and when I saw that book, I realized that the curvature that I was seeing in that orogenic belt that's you know, currently contributed to regular uniformitarianism mountain building is really attributed to a blend of this magnificent uniformitarianism in these periods of time where we can flourish as humans disrupted by those periods of time that the Eldridge and Gold characterized in their punctuated equilibrium of life on Earth. The biological evolution and complexity, the resetting of life, and then the flourishing and the aftermath of catastrophism, and realize that our tectonic theory does not include those elements of geological time that are are foundational to our science. And so. so
0: Go ahead, real quick, before, I, before we get too deep on that, I just want to make sure for all of us non-geologists out there that I'm tracking and unpacking some of the things you're saying. So what I'm hearing is, is that in the world that you reside in, there is a theory of uniformitarianism about how mountains are made, about how tectonic plates move and things like that. And things that you were finding when exploring the wells were not accounted for by that those theories, because you were seeing that rapid change rather than uniform change was causing dramatic and seismic shifts in the landscape and otherwise. And you were trying to figure out what were the causes in the book that you were given was saying that the cause was impact from asteroids and other types of, is that correct? No, that's not
1: even consideration. See, okay, it's not impact cometary and asteroid impacts of the like that wiped out the dinosaurs and, and gave rise to placental bearing mammals isn't even factored into plate tectonic theory the energy behind those things and that's because we have the we can't scale them to the level necessary for us to reasonably understand what the processes are and there's also a backlash because geology the science and craft that i practice is predicated on uniformitarianism continue slow plotting processes that operate through time that can account for everything we see. And yet they can't. And again, that was pointed out very eloquently by Eldridge and Gold, Stephen Jay Gold of of all of his book fame and, and Harvard paleontologists that realized that at every era boundary through geologic time, like 65 million years when the dinosaurs were wiped out, life is reset. Mass extinctions surviving species flourish in their wake in order to, to populate the earth in that in that vacuum and it's the same as a forest fire you know burning threes down replenishing the earth with the potash needed for new fern growth. same sort of thing only it's the story of life and yet we as geologists currently right now don't even include those mechanisms in our tectonic theory which have to play an important part because as we are all taught in cosmology the earth is formed by concretion and bombardment. How can that not be part of our tectonic theory? And you go, what? Of course it has to be. No, it's not. And when you talk to people about it, then they get into the details of the minutiae that, that, that make them realize that, oh my god, if we accept this, then we have to rethink everything. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So this this point really was really interesting when I was reading your research, which was you said a couple of things when you had said, you know, geology in general is a young science. I mean, it's about 100 years old and and it wasn't until the last oh,
1: 18, late 1800s. Yeah.
0: Late 1800s. OK. And it wasn't until the last 15, 20 years with the advent of global positioning satellites and the ability to kind of see things at a, at a large scale and the kind of insertion into the of these tracking devices into the Earth's. Us, that we could that's really great. start to understand what we've been looking at. So up till then, before the satellites and the insertions, what had people been using to create their models oh, that's great.
1: Um, well there, there, before that we, we were learned we were taught that it was a hotspot reference system that there are these plates uh, that are there are these places in the earth like Hawaii where magnet is ascending from deep within the earth. And the, the plates shift over those gradually through time, accounting for the things like the Hawaii Emperor Seamount Chain, with Hawaii being the active hotspot, and then the Seamount Chain and the atolls Atoll its Wake, showing where it used to be, and thereby indicating crustal movement. And uh, so we used this hotspot fixed reference frame because we couldn't peer on ourselves backward like we now can peer at other planets because now, we didn't have a self inspective reference frame like we do now with GPS. Now, with GPS, we know exactly what the plates are doing, and in fact, our plate, the North American and and Central American and Southern American plates are rotating about the point of the Gulf of Mexico where that impact happened 65 million years ago. 65 million years later, we're still trying to dispel energy from this energy flux imparted by a 30, 60 kilometer diameter piece of stone hurtling in at 30 kilometers per second minimum speed. Things we can't even model on Earth, because the the highest ballistics we can attain at gunnery ranges are an order of magnitude lower than that. So how can we even test what the physical responses of these things are when we can't even reproduce these cosmic events in our laboratory?
0: This was was really interesting when I read it, because you had said something where okay so you fracture a bone right you get a baseball hit at your leg and it fractures your femur or whatever it does you could actually look at an x-ray and see the fracture points where the ball hit what happened to the bone fragments and all that kind of stuff and that's the same thing that you have been doing but with the earth the earth has been hit by the baseball in the off the gulf of mexico you can see where it hit and then you can track it you also said something about that the earth it's almost still healing itself. And we can 65 million years later in reaction to that impact. And you can see how like around the impact zone, there was like a cone shape. Could you talk about that? And do you think that it's like an intelligent process or how does the earth go about healing itself in the way that you describe?
1: No, it's a purely physical, chemical and geologic process. And and it's easily accountable through all the conventional chemistry and physics that we, we know. It's material responses to behavior, ductile and plastic. Uh, The the ductile part of the earth that gets broken like a shell fragment is only, you know, the fingernail width of uh, of the earth, uh, you know, relative to the plastic interior. When the earth gets hit, it resonates like a bell and everything always is in equilibrium in the earth's surface. Because of the amount of heat that's being generated on the outside and being expelled to the outside through the different conduits and generating our electrical electromagnetic field, all that kind of stuff. We're in an equilibrium. When something hits to perturb that equilibrium, and then we go through that period of adjustment where it has to dissipate the energy flux in a systematic manner, mm-hmm. abiding by all the chemical laws and physical laws that we know of. And, and all those laws and theories, you know, and are true. It's just that. We never really had the metrics to be able to, to figure this out before. So we couldn't, it was impossible. So now we have the look, metrics.
0: Right, and, and you describe how, like when you look at Mars, you can see because the surface is denuded in some level, you can see the impact of, of objects hitting the surface of Absolutely. Mars. And you can see where it literally cracks the surface and subsurface water or liquid kind of emerges. And yeah. then you, you can take the diagram of what that impact looks like on the surface of Mars and then look under the ocean and see the same types of impact on our planet. Is that right? Correct. Okay. So we know that it's happening on other planets. We know that it looks the same when it happens on Earth, but your research is at some level considered heretical in your field because people have a theory that doesn't account for that kind of uh, that kind of impact theory, making the changes to our planet that has made, and because their livelihoods and their research and everything is tied to that, people are just generally reluctant to change. Maybe it's not a it's not a conspiracy. It's just people are naturally reluctant to change, and they've got a lot of things going that are attached to that theory, which makes it difficult to change sometimes. Is that fair, or that a little bit yeah, perhaps?
1: So they can really account for people's behavior. Yeah. I can't explain it. Um that's why I went into geology partly because it allowed me to distance myself from human behavior as
0: much as possible.
1: <laughs> 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 um you will find geologists to be kind of an aloof breed from time to time because um, you know unfortunately, you know, information in it's is in its purest sense can be all so easily corrupted by, by people. And for, for various reasons, but honestly, I'm not faulting anybody for this. It's just my father-in-law, Barry Crolin, God rest his soul, introduced me to one of his um, oncologist brother's friends, who was a really, in my mind, a brilliant man who was a very advanced thinker. And he gave me a book after speaking to me of some of my frustrations associated with enacting a paradigm shift. That's what we're talking about. Scientific paradigm shifts don't usually take place in people's lifetimes, they're usually posthumous. Because the reaction to society is filtered by people who have vested interests in in currently accepted paradigms. So I recognize this because he gave me a book, Uh, I'm looking up at it right now, I think it's called uh, Paradigm Shifts in Science or something. I forget actually what it's called. We can talk about that, but... um, it's true these things are slow plotting things that only happen in today's world uh, sometimes serendipitously through venues like this because i've tried to publish this in scientific journals and they ridicule me they don't even let it get into review they they snot they they have snubbed it two times in two specific cases to two different scholarly publications one over from china i thought maybe i could get away if i sent it to china <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, they snubbed me there too. It was a reviewer, I think, from Italy. But um, people aren't really too ready to accept the fact that mountains can rise instantaneously. Not, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about geological instances that take three to five million years. I'm talking about mom, moment in a moment. Yeah. Because these things are coming in plow driving in, and the whole brittle upper crust of the Earth reacts. It's brittle elastic media. Fractures, and then the substrate is plastic, so you end up actually in uh, uh, basically indenting it. Okay, picture this: so you can scale the what happened in the Gulf of Mexico to basically the size of a BB hitting a hot air balloon. Okay, imagine, imagine what happens to a BB when, a hot, when it hits a hot air balloon. What the hot air balloon goes through as just as that small little impact. Now take that projectile and make it stony and multiply it to go 30 kilometers per second it's a lot of energy the problem that is facing geology and tectonic theory right now is that we say that in the in the geologic literature that less than one 100th percent of the energy of that indenter gets into the ground
0: how is that possible? That doesn't seem to like it, it add up from a physics point of view.
1: Well, they say the rest of it is in destroying, destroying the energy taken up and destroying the projectile, vaporization, atmospheric disturbances, and they only account for point ten to the minus three to ten to the minus fifth. What they call it, it's a uh, um, what is it called? The coefficient, the seismic coefficient. Seismic coefficient is estimated to be. Anywhere below 0.1%, I think it's like 10, 20% is why Sorry. people don't understand why the, the Alberta, you know, or, okay, here's what I think happened. I think the Grand Canyons, the Colorado Plateau, uh, all of those things were excited by the, the impact in the Gulf of Mexico, which raised the Llano uplift in Texas. And raised the um, basically the Colorado Plateau, uh, which is one phase of Valerimite orogeny, which occurred in 65 million years ago, and another phase in 35 million years ago, which was the Chesapeake. So those overriding structures have both played an integral part of our tectonic heritage of the North American plate over the past 65 million years since the dawn of the mammals. And as geologists refusing to accept that, we're only just styming the advance of science. But thank you for the opportunity to be able to share this with open-minded individuals because as I say on my website, impacttectonics.org, <laughs> the the internet is a wild open, open place right now. And, and um you basically have, get access to material in unfettered manner right now. That's not always going to be the case. Probably it's very soon in the next decade if you're gonna see that shut down.
0: One could argue that as the earth changes through cataclysmic or uh in rapid in rapid ways due to cataclysm that so does society with the advent of information dispersion at a large scale whether it's the printing press whether it's radio whether it's tv whether it's the internet when you have massive moments yes. of information reaching a lot of people and the kind of sharing of ideas you get this accelerated change not a gradual yes. change
1: you have a societal bloom that we're experiencing right now. Yeah. But the flip side of that is what we're also experiencing right now. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So, um, so really to kind of tie, tie a little bit of a bow on it and stuff to do with the like, 20, 40 years of research or whatever you have here. I think like, w- like your word picture that you used. I picture myself when I was a kid running down the hallway with my socks on and sliding and hitting the rug that was in the hallway, right? And it wrinkles yep. up and yep. I was the comet and the rug was the Earth's and, and the wrinkles yep. are the, the mountains and that's the yep. theory.
1: Yep. Got it. And, and if you go to Mars and Google Earth, all you have to do is go explore the planets and Google Earth, Google Earth Pro, it gives you the opportunity to go to Mars. And you go to uh, Mount Vesuvius, or not Mount Vesuvius, um, um, Olympus Mons. Mm -hmm. Olympus Mons is the largest volcano in our solar system, and it sits symmetrically behind the wake of a massive impact complex, one arm of which, one boundary, lateral boundary of which is Valley Marineris, which is all where the water ran out because of this massive energy heat flux. They don't even believe that. Even in the scientific circle, circles of uh, uh, you know Ivy League schools, they don't they don't still get it. And I try to point it out to them, and they just look at it like, well, maybe someday, you know, we'll you know, get it, or it'll be proven to be true. But the the poetry and beauty in it is that it it marries perfectly with punctuated equilibrium, biological punctuated equilibrium. And that's what we're talking about here, is tectonic punctuated equilibrium. And I'm gonna be advocating that in scientific circles as much as I can in the future uh, when I'm not distracted by my pursuits.
0: So speaking of distracted, let's fast forward 65 million years, um, and or thereabouts, and talk about the 1640s. So there was a gentleman, Sir Edmund Ployden, uh, who had come to explore the region between the Delaware and the Hudson Rivers. And he brought a bunch of knights, about 500. And they they claim to have located a fortress of Raritan kings in the north next to Hudson River. So you're seeing this on the screen here right now for people who are looking at home. For th- those who aren't, it's kind of a yellowed out map. And there's a mountain there that says Mount Ploydon. So you got somehow roped in to trying to discover where the secret or hidden fortress of these Raritan kings were, and somehow your expertise from doing the work that you had done uh, was your main to this investigation. Can you tell me a little bit about the backstory of how that came to be, and let's talk a little bit about what you found as a result of your exploration.
1: Roped in is not the not the right, the right phrase. Um, when I retired, um from the state i knew that there was going to be a transition period until i landed on my feet otherwise right because you know there are certain restrictions on what you can do with the former employer for a year and blah 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 and so uh, i had some time and i had learned earlier about this native american american in uh as as they like to be called now apparently A collection of American Indian artifacts that was curated in the mid 1800s to the early 1900s by philanthropists, Victorian age people who were doing those types of things, Uh, not only collecting stuff that farmers found in fields around here, but also exchanging things at world fairs that were were drawn from raided uh, ceremonial tombs in Ohio Valley, where I was born. So my interest in in looking at this collection that I that I saw when I was mapping in the area and living in Flemington, uh, I, I was there and I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to spend some time on it when I had extra time to spend. So I contacted the Historical Society uh, Pat Moll, and she was at the time um, the executive director of the Historical Society. and she worked with me to allow me to have access to all of their information that they had in this collection so that i could do a photographic inventory of the first of it for the first time and never been done and with my internet programming skills html skills and other aspects of what i like to do my hope was to start a information sharing network among archaeologists interested in Early American colonial history in the New Jersey region, and in particular, how these lithic materials were used and the popularity of them in our region where I live, which is known as Upper Argillite Alley, because argillite was the, this area was the k of, uh, of stone tool production, because argillite is a hard splintery uh, metamorphosed rock that can be fashioned for hose, wood chopping implements, Uh, The hunting implements anything you need. It can be fashioned and it's abundant. So when I find out that the uh, Native American, the American Indian maps showed that this was the most actively populated area during uh, colonial contact time. And then during the background research associated with me understanding what it was that I was photographing, I stumbled across these historical passages in the history of Somerset uh, County, uh, Hunterdon County, Written in 1883, I think it was, and it talks about these uh, burial mounds that were found up on Mount Ploydon, which um, Edmund Ployden named for himself, since it was the most prominent mountain in the Raritan Bay, that you can see from Raritan Bay, and it was where the, the Raritan kings had, or a Raritan king, had his fabled fortress. And I thought, well, oh, my God, uh, that's in my backyard. And uh, I've hiked up there in the course of my mapping. But I, I, I didn't go up there in any kind of detail because, quite honestly, coming down from the highlands of New Jersey and the Valley and Ridge, where I did all my tectonics research, coming down into the Piedmont where this Mount Ployden is, Cushetok Mountain, the deer ticks are so bad that everybody gets you know, Lyme disease. I've had it four or five times. I came down off that mountain covered in ticks the first time I went up there, and I said I'd not gone back up there. Well, it comes to find out that according to this this legend, that that's probably where it would be. So I, I took my dog <laughs> Charlie Doodle, who's on his last legs right now, um, and I went up to the top of the mountain, and I found these things. And um, I was spurred on by a 19 19- I think ninety article in the New York Times where uh, researchers were trying to find these and they couldn't. And um, an earlier account that I had read about uh, mistakenly, you know, had the wrong location of where to look. And. Um, I, the, the, the story of the discovery of these things, Matthew, is, is really pretty cool because I had two colleagues with me that worked with me at the Geological Survey. One guy that I spent all those years mapping uh, the complexities of, of the fold and Thrust Belt up in Northwest Jersey. And another guy who sat next to me in a cubicle for 10 years that we wrote a book together. And I had just on a whim invited these guys to come up in April on an April to help me find these things because um, I knew that if I put my foot or something in a rock hollow or lodged myself, my dog wouldn't be able to help me. (laughs) And so I enlisted their help, and by God, didn't we find them. And there you're looking at the one right now, which is the only one which has not been ransacked by colonial foragers.
0: So, for those who aren't who don't have the benefit of the visuals, we also are doing a screen share here and showing some of the hikes up above the lake, looking southeast. And there are, I guess, for lack of a better, they're kind of an elongated cairn or cairn. Yes, they're stone um, cairns.
1: Uh, accumulations of nothing but trap rock, which is what the mountain is made of. Many of them are rounded, as if um, they picked up. Uh, stones on their course up to a spot of veneration and laid the stone on top of the grave in passing, as was an American Indian custom. So um, the big ones have big creases. Now, the dimensions of these things, the three most important, are are almost in the shape of conical pyramids, situated on the, uh, the extreme south view of the crest of the mountain, on a subsidiary ridge overlooking what is now a reservoir back in the day when they constructed this this was not a reservoir it was a crest of easy defense that the king from the mountain fortress could view the plains on both sides from this crest and it's written up as that in the account it was he could see the, the, the planes were of- all yeah
0: Oh, it's kind of like a horseshoe, right, where there's only one kind of main means of uh, entrance and exit. So it's very well fortified, the valley area that's surrounded by the Brown Mountain. It's easily
1: defended as it's written up by 300 of his warriors or something like that. And the the fable goes that when uh, Alexander, who um, is now the namesake for Alexandria Township, and one of the people who purchased one of these 20,000 acre tracts of land, during the great purchases and all that. Uh, When he was surveying the property, he ran across these and when uncovering them, uncovered a lineage of seven uh, warrior um, men with garb and copper wristbands, leg bands, and other utensils, clearly indicating that they were not of the same people who had lived here prior to this. So a different Indian population Currently, there on the Lenape, and that was the way the fable went. Now, that spurred me into subsequent research, especially because having an Ohio roots and understanding that Serpent Mountains and the uh, Chillicothe Adena presence and the Hopewell presence and everything like that in Ohio and the Mound Builders, I had done a little bit more research and found out that yes, indeed, there are Adena like. Archaeologists do not call them Adena, they call them Adena like sites in new jersey so the mound builders were not just in well, central ohio and mississippi valley they were along the east coast as well and a lot of the people the new england um, um, research and antiquities group the there i think they've been call themselves they know this as well because there's a lot of stone you know cairns uh, and things my also my research is also uncovered and which is and thank you for bringing this up on the screen and um It supports a Smithsonian Institute uh, narrative in which uh, early man in the maritime northeast North America perhaps may have made transatlantic northern journeys because the oldest burial mounds that we find are up in Ontario at 5600 BC. And if you plot that up on that chart, you will see that the maritime archaic predates even the earliest Peruvian coastal and highland settlements, except for perhaps Monteverde, which is a very unique spot in northern South America. But the um, population of North America is multifaceted and involves subsequent waves of Asiatic born immigration, which include, I believe, the current Iroquoian and uh, Algonquin, including Lenape descendants because their own Walla history says that when they were migrating eastward along the Mississippi, they encountered this group of people in the Mississippi Valley or Ohio Valley, they called the Allegway, I think it is, and had to have their permission to pass on eastward. And how they even knew that there was another coast to eastward, I have no idea. But what we're finding out is that uh, even the distribution of Paleo-Indian points represents kind of a flipped history to what we've been
0: taught. And by what you're yeah. saying, okay, so th- there's a lot to kind of, again, uh, unpack a little bit here, but just to make sure that I'm understanding, when you went to visit the site on Cushetuk mon- Mountain, the the legends had it that there was a, um, a group of chieftains, and they also, curiously enough, there was a record of an Ethiopian king there that was ruling yes. alongside of them, which... We no, not, a,
1: not an Ethiopian king. It was written up as being descendants of the Ethiopian uh, kings or some empire or something like that. So they were Africans that were obviously in America prior to the first English incursion, who had either escaped the Jamestown colony and migrated north, and found um, um, a haven uh, atop of the smaller mountain relative to where the Raritan kings had theirs on Mount Ploydon. and they called that Ma- Amara Hill. And um, a friend of mine with uh, a couple of friends of mine have gone up there with metal detectors and trying to find evidence of the early population and, and existence of these Ethiopian descendants being up there because, you know, that's really quite a story in and of itself that the Africans actually, you know, would be the English here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because the so, English were preceded by the Dutch and the uh, German, uh, the Dutch and um, Swingles, I think it was. yes
0: So, so the time at that time, the Ethiopians were with the Lenape. Is that right at, in that area, or is it oh, probably yes?
1: Uh, the Raritan Kings were probably, you know, one of the uh, the, the regional uh, groups of Lenape.
0: Gotcha, it's but but, but the the legend was not referring to the Lenape. The legend was referring to people who had a dress and um, an aspect to them that that was older. And what you're saying is that um, the the group that might have been, you're not saying that the idea is, is that it might have been the same people who were associated with the the Hopewell tradition, the mound builders, who were referenced by the Lenape and others in their travels across the country. They talked about bumping into this group of people, the mound builder culture. Yep. Is that that right?
1: Yep, and I think that there are mounds uh, all the way up through the Susquehanna Valley. Um, There are mounds along the the, um, Susquehanna River. There are mounds um, reported in Berks County, uh, Pennsylvania and um, all the way up into New York. So there's really good uh, evidence to suggest that the mound builder culture um, and earlier cultures that existed at a time when sea level was very different than it is now. The much of the uh, Atlantic margin was exposed, which is now inundated because of sea level rise. So much of these cultural remnants and indications are, probably are now under the sea in the shallow sea, out on the continental shelf, because they these cultures would have been migrating along the sea sh- the seashore, which is now retreat. You know now much much more up on the continental margin than it used to be.
0: Where so where is that in, specifically that you're talking about? Like
1: where would all the all remnants- Atlantic margin all on, on the all on the proof of this. Civilization being here is probably, I'm saying, perhaps a lot of it buried under the under the existing sea, you know, in the shallow continental shelf. Like, specific, like
0: specifically, that. like if someone were to want to get a boat and a crew in, like, your James Cameron submarine, where would they uh, be going? Well, you
1: know, well, well, you don't have to go anywhere because if you look at the Delmarva Peninsula going down into Baltimore, that that has is rife with evidence of Paleo Indian occupation and um that indians tended to use the and i don't you know indians is kind of it's kind of a weird weird term you know indigenous americans first nations indians yeah mm-hmm. whatever whatever tools were at their disposal and you know so if you're in a rocky area you'll have rocky tools and if you're in a, a shelly area you'll have shelly tools you know and those trade works the networks that developer, or well, what i'm interested in, in trying to foster by. Like, Taking these records of these historical content in secular little libraries, putting them out on the internet so people can go, Oh, look at that. That's exactly what we have up here. Or, you know, that's the information bloom and, in, in, you know, the real power behind information exchange in a free, open, democratic society. And I, I love what we are able to do that right now. I love the fact that we're able to do this right now. You know, so
0: cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so the to kind of end because uh, we still have one more chapter. I actually fast forwarded too far. Now I'm going to have to rewind. But to kind of end the research, current status of that research. What uh, it looks. Uh, what is left to be found. What kind of technology. What kind of resources would you need to fully prove out what you think is going on there, and where does that stand?
1: It's practically impossible because. There are grave protection acts that were enacted by the U.S. government in the 1950s. After you know, we developed a conscience in terms of viewing American Indian, Native Indigenous peoples' graves as sacrosanct as we do our own. So we can't just go around and dig up graves of our own, and we shouldn't be able to dig up graves of them. There's no compelling reason for anyone to be able to do that. But the 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 most poignant part of this is that. They've already done it. They've already recorded what is there, and it fits the narrative exactly with what we're finding elsewhere. So it's not that we have to prove that it's there, but if you could and would, of course, you'd have to do a systematic archaeological excavation that would require more bureaucratic administration than I would ever be willing to put into it.
0: Got it, which is probably why you've moved on to some of the other areas that you've been fascinated with recently, Um, one of which of particular interest that I was really curious about was your work on the NASCA lines. So how did you Uh become involved in that work, and what has your research recently unearthed uh, that wasn't necessarily known prior to that?
1: The people and what they left behind in terms of the geoglyphs on the the desert of Peru are a prime example of how geology and climate control arise, demise and flourishing of a specific society through time. I stumbled upon it because when I'm teaching my college introductory geology course, I Utilize Google Earth as a tool to teach the students geospatial information systems. Because that's the way of the world now. We don't read topographic maps anymore. We don't have maps in our cars anymore. We use global communication systems and electronic media to do everything. So the faster the people understand that and adapt to it, the more that they're going to get paid and their value is going to be worthwhile in the employment field. So I take Google Earth and I use the NASCA lines as a place to entice students to get an interest in using it as a remote sensing tool to learn the power of the tool. In doing so over consecutive semesters and from my background in farming and from my background in aquifer and hydrology studies, it dawned on me that what we're looking at here are agricultural management systems that evolve through time. And the key emerged when I added spot elevations, which you can do now using these virtual globes. Because at the intersection of every one of these lines, it shows a distributary circuitry that if you were to to zoom in on that, and and that's probably not an accurate enough display, there are water mains that siphon off the the spring runoff from the mountains into their agricultural paddies but more so they even learned aquifer management techniques at the same time the romans were engineering aqueducts on the other side of the world they engineered management aquifer recharge and fountain designs in these fields and now i have never been there but i can assure you that when i go there i will i will see exactly what it is that i am hypothesizing because People have worked this out and they've hinted at what it is that these things do but there's always a mystical aspect to them and they're not mystical at all. They're purely utilitarian, born out of the need for man to harvest fresh water in the desert environment. The reason that they're still around 2,000 years later is because that climate receives less than half an inch of rain per year so that their ground disturbances are preserved in that particular environment because of the aridity, It's a perfect stage for doing remote sensing and enticing students to learn the intricacies of a computer program. And my revisiting it time after time and and having time to develop it allowed me to uh, have that aha moment when I realized what was happening. And for those of you who see the picture in front of you right now, you'll see anthropomorphic zoologic phytomorphic early gestural forms like hummingbirds and trees and monkeys that all have flow- through designs so that when they're harnessing these springs that they first found in this desert oasis, they sculpted the grounds into these these artistic forms that later became overridden by agricultural systems that arose in the society at the same time their organized religion did.
0: Okay so, the, there's an aquifer nearby that's caused the, that's related to the change in the landscape around the Nazca lines is related to another uh, potential impact which created the terrain necessary for the aquifer to form. If I'm yeah, is that the w- impact
1: complicates the scenario at this stage. The aquifer is simply the uh, alluvial fan that's being shed out of the niche points of the mountain range. So it's just a bunch of gravel and sand that's been shed off the mountains. And the Nazca lines are etched into the surface of it because they learned to divert the spring runoff from the mountains. They weren't getting they weren't getting rain. They were only getting water that was passing through the, the peat mud plains coming down from the mountains. So they learned to divert it, recharge the aquifers with it so that it would seep out of the ground for prolonged periods of time that it otherwise would.
0: So they had these, they also were tapping in underneath the water into these recharging stations, right? Where they, so you had a combination of engineering. Gotcha. Uh, It's kind of interesting, just as a real quick sidebar, I was a religious studies guy and, and philosophy guy, studied a lot of uh, ancient religions. And one of the things that they did was there was a group called uh, the Nabataeans who was related at some level to the family of John the Baptist. And, they, and if you've seen Indiana Jones in the place of Petra at the end mm-hmm. where he go, they mm-hmm. go in there, that whole mm-hmm. system has an elaborate series of channeled aquifers as well to Actually, collect yeah. water yeah. in the middle of it. So yeah. you've got yeah. at different yeah. places in the world where people are supposedly disparate, uh, in this case, the Nazca and the Romans uh, are coming up with the same kind of ideas, but I, they might have shared it in, or the Romans might have borrowed it from earlier civilizations. But similar kind of inventions are happening in water movement and distribution at different parts of the globe. Is that accurate?
1: Absolutely. Simultaneous discovery. Um, uh, and as we spoke about earlier, and we're not getting into it here earlier, there there is ancient wisdom, you know, imparted, you know, to us you know from from cultures that we can even hardly know about but one of the most interesting aspects of this whole Nazca thing and something that emerged simply from doing a systematic study of them using Google Earth and this you know can be done by anyone if you take the time to scrutinize things like an artist would a painting you know at three different levels you stand back you look at it you look at it from a normal scale of painting and then you get up real close to look at your brush strokes you know if you look at things from three different levels, no matter what you do, you have a better perspective on, on what it is that, that's happening. And when I was surveying the area, uh, if you go to the uh, the next slide, I think you had it up where the mount yes, that one. This is fascinating because what I stumbled upon here in doing a systematic study of the extent of the Nazca lines in the region using regular google earth image i depicted and saw or i saw and then subsequently depicted what's a mountain ceremony site to these people where they were conducting religious battle ceremonies where they were taking captives in order for ritual beheadings the and in blood drinking ceremonies that were predicated by climatic downturns now we know this because el nina La Niña, El effects drastically impact these civilizations. The Nazca, when they found these freshwater resources, were flourishing during a climatic optimum. As they grew and flourished and became more uh, engineering savvy, the societal pressures of climate change came to bear on them, and their rituals reflect that. They were taking captives out of ritual battle on places like this, holding the captives until the climate turned down and then beheading them and sacrificing them to the gods so that the climate would change. And that's a pretty well-known fact. Now there's uh, both archeological and and biological studies of these people and and, and the scars and how they've been held in captivity until certain times and then they were sacrificed. But in this particular scene you're looking at right here, the amazing thing is that the non-utilitarian Nazca lines that are carved into the hillsides and on the mountaintops around these ceremonial battlefields are depicting their priestly deities in the same manner that other pr- primitive cultures do. And on the lower left, you see what's called an oculate being, who is the warrior priest. The warrior priest is married with the owl priest above, and then the priestess to the right, and there's also a jaguar priest, which um, actually are depicted in detail in the Moshi culture from the northern Peru, which existed at the same time as the Nazca, but up until this time, there's really been no good evidence of their interaction. So you see the Moshi in the Peru, and the Nazca in that little diagram that you just went to. So northern Peruvian, southern Peruvian cultures, this is proof that those two were interacting during their monumental phases because the the Moshi depicted their in iconography their ritual practices with absurd detail, and uh, not only their their religious but also sexual practices, and they were quite frank about how they conveyed those things in their textiles and pottery. The Nazca were a step below in terms of their, their. Um, in my opinion, their conveying of of cultural activities. But as you can see right in front of you, they went from early post-fishing maritime artistic creative to agricultural and theocratic, and then to militaristic and head-taking to where I think this statistic shows something like significant percentages of the population were being headed at the same at, on a yearly basis because quite honestly, People were outstripping the availability of a lot of
0: resources. So, what you're at some level, what you're seeing is like in that proliferous period where they're doing, you know, lobsters and fish and humming, and it's all these zoomorphic and phytomorphic forms. That's what you were seeing early lines when they were collecting water from the runoff. And then later they decided to opt out of those, those zoomorphic forms for other forms of moving water in that area. And you can tell that because it's an overlay on top of the earlier forms. So you're able to use a combination of pottery and the geologic ref- record to kind of figure out when they made these different shapes. Is that accurate?
1: Yes. Yeah, so one of the principles for historical geology is something called cross cutting relationships. It allows you to establish things in relative timing. And the relative timing shows that the early zoomorphic, phytomorphic Nazca lines would flow through designs parallel to the proliferous stage. The transitional stage are, are where they started to divert. And rather than pond the springs that they found coming out of the ground, they learned the diversion water main schemes and distributary schemes. That was during their prolif- their uh, second stage. Then when the climate change started to bring societal pressure on them is when they really started getting into the militaristic and beheading and ritualistic stages. So up until that time, things were good. Look at the look at the graph, Matthew, of climate change, and you will see it very, uh, very drastically. Here, um,
0: this one? No, at the bottom. Oh. You see the red line? Oh, let me go back you here. See. Uh this one? No, the one you had up there before. You just had it. Uh, let me see, uh, which one am I here?
1: Uh, that one, that one right this there. One? Okay. The oh, yeah. climate tracks climate change is determined by glacial lake and pollen records for the past 12,000 years. And what you see relative to right now is that during that period of time when archaic man was roaming, hunting, and spreading, climate was warmer than than it is now.
0: So we're just not returning to those levels.
1: Yes, and that's when we had gigantism because there is no fear of global warming. There is no global warming as is being heaped upon us from a philosophical standpoint. It's happening, but it's happening at a rate and a manner which is completely compatible with existing geological records. What happens during global warming is gigantism. People and things grow big because flora and, and plants and everything are abundant. And, you know, there's less ice. Now look at the focus in on that period of time when the Romans and, and the uh, Nazca and Moshe flourish. You see, that's often referred to as the Roman climate optimum because it's right in the center of a very cold period of time at the end of the Iron Age when the Adena folk Hopewell were flourishing. Very stable, wetter climate. And the reason that the Nazca were able to survive where they did was because that coldness and wetness corresponded to having a perched aquifer that has subsequently been dried up because, as you see, we just came out of the little ice age.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So the early forms with the animal shapes that people are normally associate with the Nazca lines were a less effective means of transporting and moving water than the later forms. Is that one of the big reasons that they changed the style?
1: No, the population grew and there were increasing demands on developing more complicated engineering solutions to supply water to a growing population. The uh initially ponded forms were probably done by small tribal groups who found the springs in the oases and decided to, you know, grow their their beans, squash, and and corn in in, you know, these ponded little spring effigies,
0: And they happen to do them in the shapes of their their gods, um giving thanks and recognition to those things that were provided to them. And the reason that when people say that they can only be viewed from the heavens or from above, the reason that they would have done that would be because that's where the gods were or why? Perhaps. We don't know that we part. Never
1: know. I do yeah. know that the, the uh, o- ocular being is a famous Nazca glyph because it's often been referred to as the astronaut, mm-hmm. uh, which raises the extraterrestrial origin of these lines, which first actually put me onto them and I left that part of the story out. I, I told you I first used these things in Google Earth Labs, but I was introduced to them when I was, again, a lad reading science fiction because Van Daniken in his book, Chariots of the Gods, raises the prospect that these were alien landing craft sites. And it just was a fascinating prospect to consider that you know, this is proof of extraterrestrial visitation. Now, the interesting aspect of that is that these things are all visible from the sky. The mountain ceremony complex that we just looked at have these effigies that I can't really determine using, you know, the kind of imagery that comes with these free virtual globes. I, I would have to go down there with drones and fly them to figure out exactly if they do fit the Moshi scheme perfectly, which I suspect they do. But you can't do that kind of stuff, you know, without, again, layers and layers of bureaucratic, uh, you know, control and authorization and whatnot. Um, but you can do it locally. Um I kind of got off track.
0: What were no. we talking about? No, you nailed it. I mean, we were just trying to figure, I was just curious about the evolution of the lines and why they were the shape that they were in terms of if the, um, but you answered yeah. that. No, but, no, they were. And, and the amazing thing is that, that,
1: that we're coming to understand this just at a time now where we're trying to address climate change as being you know a focal uh, uh, aspect of all global humanity that brings us together. And that is, you know, I've often heard, Referred to as the new religion because it's the one thing we can all unite over is climate change, you know. And and yet, when you take a really good, comprehensive look at it, boy, I would love to have another
0: podcast on this with you. Well, we can do more. we can, we we sure got a lot in in an hour, I think.
1: Uh, uh virtual
0: high five on that one. Um, uh, so no, I I, I want to just thank you again for, I mean. For coming on, for sharing this research, I had a heck of a lot of time reading your research to kind of bone up on uh, being able to talk at some level uh, about what you what's been going on because it's really all of it. Every single you know bucket that you're working in has is a rabbit hole that I could spend years on potentially. So thanks for summing it up for us on the talk today, and thanks for being with us um, today.
1: I appreciate the opportunity and um, look forward to uh, perhaps doing it in the future again.
0: Likewise. Well, that was a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I wanna thank Dr. Herman again for stopping by and sharing his research. We got to chat a little bit after the call about some other things that he's studying right now and I hope I have a chance to bring him on and have him share some of that with you. So uh, definitely check out his website. I'm excited to bring you some new content here soon. I've got a couple of other people I'm reaching out to that I'd love to talk to, it's been a while. And I've also, I'm down a couple rabbit holes of research and doing some writing projects that I'm hoping to be able to share with you soon either on podcast or releasing them in book form. So stay in tune, uh, stay in touch. Go stop by my new website at matthewesmith.com and definitely uh, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to enjoy podcasts. Leave us a review on iTunes. That would be great. Help spread the word and get other people, which would help me uh, find some additional new guests and people to talk to. So thanks again for stopping by and we will catch you next I was still
1: standing in the room
0: Now my eyes
1: have adjusted